Uh, we're going to be in Numbers 20, and then next week we'll do Numbers 21. And then the, the last week before Christmas, we take three weeks out of Awana Youth 180 and our Wednesday uh, Bible study uh, for Christmas break. I always say, go see the lights with your kids uh, one of the Wednesdays, and then just to have a little bit of a, a breather, we start back up in, in early January. But the last lesson, which will be on the 13th, we're going to review where we've been in numbers. And I apologize for not having a, 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 a I was going to say audio, but it's a visual up here. Uh, but it's been a, it was a little bit of a longer day. I was preaching chapel in Fredericksburg. And so it was a good hour and 15-minute drive to Fredericksburg Christian on the other side of Fredericksburg across the railroad tracks and whateverville that was. And so it went really great. Uh, Maddie Camphouse had to introduce me. So in front of two, 300 high school peers, they, they, they dumped that on her in the morning that she had to introduce her uh, second cousin and pastor. So, but it was a joy to, to teach there. And then coming back, obviously, tonight, I didn't want to throw that on Theron. He sets up the PowerPoint. I said, you know what? How about we just go without? They can remember, you know. This time, I, and my mom reminded me to put the recording on. So we're, we're all on, on pitch tonight. Uh, but I want to share where we're at. The reason for that is I don't want to dive into 22 through 24, 25, which is a story of, of Balaam because it's a switch. Uh, so we're going to actually finish up. We're going to next week have a lot of battles taking place. Uh, thought about c- combining a little bit more, but Numbers 20 is a really critical chapter in Numbers. This is the, the failure of Moses that comes up, and so it's good to walk through, and it's marks of transition. I want to mention a few things before I dive in. Uh, one is the Christmas adult Christmas party. So if you haven't signed up yet, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we cater from El Jarapeo. Typically, we got the pricing for that. We have about 65 people signed up already. Uh, but it is a ton of fun. We do a white elephant gift exchange, and uh, I know from past experiences at my father-in-law's church that if you do that with 65 people, it gets a little drab and boring, but I've come up with a version where we're going to be doing it by table and drawing numbers by table, and then I'm going to have some fun combining tables. So whatever my little wicked brain can think of, we're going to be having a good time with a white elephant gift exchange Plenty of food, El Jarapeo, playing a lot of other fun games and fellowship. And so it is an ugly sweater party. So uh, either you can buy an ugly sweater or if you want to borrow one from Bob, you can do that. It's whatever you want to do. Uh, it works out just fine. Uh, you can, he's he's very, very friendly, sharing kind of guy. So he'll give you any one of the ones he wears on Sunday and you can just take it and see if you can win. We have a competition uh, every year. I have the same ugly sweater. It's a cat and uh, it's a grumpy cat. I like it. Actually, I don't like it. It's very hot, but I wear it. Um, and last year was the first time it got noticed. Someone said, hey, that's, that's actually a good sweater. I'm like, yeah, my wife picked it out. But either way, you can go with a perennial favorite. You can build your own, do what you want. But we have a fun time. Winner of ugliest sweater, there's a gift card for you. White elephant, plenty of food, lots of fun fellowship together. And that's on December 10th. I want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up, to sign up. And all you have to do is show up with your white elephant gift. Um, we're going to close sign up this Sunday so that we can get all the food ordered. I want to have plenty of food for everyone, and so we'll have a, a great time. We are having on Christmas Eve, uh, day falls on a Sunday. So last year, uh, Christmas Day fell on a Sunday. It was a wonderful uh, time of worship. We did a Christmas communion. So this year, we will have a morning service, a Christmas Eve communion service in the morning. The whole service is built around communion as we walk through. So the teaching is interwoven with celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper. And that evening, we'll have a um, candlelight service at 6 p.m. We'll get together, have some special music planned. We'll sing a lot. Um, 
dive into a devotional as well as we celebrate the season. So there's some key times coming up. I hope that you'll be able to make that a part of your Christmas. Now, a lot of people are traveling. Um, understand that, of course. But uh, if you're here, we'd love to have you. Invite friends and family. Invite your neighbors. Uh, we'd love for them to come and dive in. And December 3rd kicks off the Gospel of John. I'm very excited to dive into the Gospel of John. I've shared this with some people, but 20... Uh, I'm trying to remember how long it's been. I think it's been 20-plus years, 22 years uh, ago. Uh, the Gospel of John, I was working, and a co-worker of mine was showing interest in Christ. Um, and so we started doing a morning Bible study, and he's the first person I walked through the Gospel of John with. And so I'm actually going to use this as an opportunity to invite him to come to church and hear it for a second time, 20 years later. But uh, excited about the Gospel of John. It is just one of the, it's obviously a unique gospel. The synoptics are there, beautiful picture of Christ's life and history. And then you have the Gospel of John with its very focused emphasis, John 20, 21, 22, or 20, 21. Um, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's a very, very focused book. And it's been fascinating as I read some of my favorite commentators Um, one of them uh, was John MacArthur, and in his introduction to John, he says, I'm doing something different than I normally do. Uh, He writes in his introduction, he says, I'm just sitting on what John had to say, and yes, connecting it to the other uh, Gospels a little bit, but really just focusing in, because it is a very straightforward, seems simple, but the depth of John is is overwhelming. Some of the most profound statements about Christ uh, come in there confronting so much false doctrine that was during John's time, which combat what we have too. So uh, just a great series to, to, to connect for all of us as believers, but uh, also as we're diving in, uh, he wrote so that you would believe in Jesus Christ and that you would have life because of that. And so I want to invite people, we put out some ads and trying to get our community, getting the lost in the community, if they have questions to come. Um, be an opportunity to answer those questions. So excited about that as well. And then uh, Kelvin and I, and and mainly leading on Kelvin, I'm going to try to uh, be a help to him, but we're going to have a special time of prayer. Um, The goal is monthly, and so the first one is December 12th. It's on a Tuesday from 1130 to 1230. And I don't know if I mentioned this on Sunday, but even if you can't make the whole time, the idea is that from 1130 to 1230, we're here, and we're going to be focusing on the gospel advance around the world and locally. And so one of the things I'm going to ask you to do, we have our our salvation list in here. And a lot of you, we have information about who it's connected to. And I'm going to ask everyone that's put something on here, one of the things we'd like for everyone to do is maybe list a step that you would be praying for, an opportunity. So my, my Dutch family is here. My dad's family is on this list. Uh, they're lost. They, they might have a form of religion, but that's probably eroded away since my grandmother. Um, and so what would be a more specific request? So my dad travels to Holland. I used to travel to Holland, but I'm hoping to get to Holland this year. So specifically, I'd be praying that I'd have enough diligence to connect with some of my family when I go to Holland on business, that when my dad goes over, he, of course, is seeing his family, but that God would open up doors of opportunity. So with all of our salvation requests, I'd love to have that next layer of opportunity that you're looking for. Uh, Kelvin put on a coworker 
was battling cancer, but also needs to be saved. And so I'm going to ask Kelvin, hey, what, what, are you, what opportunity are you looking for with your coworker? Are you looking for him to sit at, with you at lunch? Are you wanting him to be open to talking with you and to stay open? What is the specific request? And then we'll pray with our, um, through the countries of the world, and we're going to dive in, and we're going to try to pray for the opportunity. If you look at John 17, you see that Christ actually prays for, for believers to be a voice, to be disciples, to reach out. And so we're going to pray for the lost, but we're also be praying for the workers that God is using to reach the lost. And so that's the focus of our time on those Tuesdays. And I want to invite the men to come out. I just would like to see how this changes our focus. I, for me, this has been something that's been on my radar for a couple years. I'm sad to say it's taken this long to finally get into play. And I, have to, I appreciate Kelvin. I mentioned the idea to him. And he came to me three weeks ago. He says, man, I was looking at my notes. <laughs> and he says, I see we're supposed to be doing a prayer. Are we going to kick that off? And, and you know what the temptation is? Let's do it in January. And we're like, let's just do it in December. Let's start and get, get going on this. And so I'm really excited about this. I'm hoping this actually helps my own personal prayer life grow. And I hope that other men can take time out of lunch and, and join in. And maybe you can't join in. You can't leave where you're at at work. And I hope you'll reach out. And, and let us know and say, hey, I, I'd like to have some prayer requests, or I'd like to focus on a country, or I'd like to grab this during my break time. But ideally, we come here, and again, maybe you can only make it 20 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it may be. Come on over, and it's going to kind of grow as we work together and pray together. And so part of this is, is we have ideas in mind, but we're open to suggestions how we can just be very diligent and focus in on the advance of uh, the gospel uh, a couple opportunities have popped up on the radar uh, for December. Uh, we want to still participate some more in mission giving, and so we have the opportunity to partner with uh, Pastor Angel in Guatemala and Pastor Livingston, um, in Livingston, sorry, Iverson, and uh, finishing off the church building there. So we'll be sending some money down for that. And then there was a, a couple, and I don't know them well. I've only met them once, but they're going to Estonia and they mentioned a Bible project in Estonia, and they're trying to get some Bibles there. And so we would like to uh, seriously consider participating in getting God's Word in a country that could uh, use Bibles. And so being able to participate in some more mission um, opportunities as uh, December closed out, uh, the Lord has been good. We had the goal to double our mission giving, which we've done. Um, so we went from uh, and a lot of it's tracking. A lot of times we weren't following. We were just we're giving, but we weren't following where it was for missions. So we have doubled. We're at 44, and we're, our goal is actually to get to 50,000 uh, from our whole budget. And we're going to make that a number, and then we're looking forward to sharing that, rejoicing in that together, and then setting a new goal for next year and to keep growing our mission giving. So our goal is to just every year be able to grow it uh, as God blesses us and, and look at opportunities. And so we're, we're excited about that. And the Lord has, has definitely opened the door uh, of opportunity. Dr. Joseph in India, that the property's purchased. He's laying a foundation. He's uh, sent me pictures. It's just fascinating what they're doing. They're laying it all by loose stone in a trench that's four feet deep. They're just setting the stones all the way in. So I was just fascinated on how they're building there. Uh, he says, the government in India is slow. And I'm like, well, that's, that's a worldwide phenomenon, right? The, the government's slow. Any government workers in here? You guys are slow. Just kidding. This is it. Uh, <laughs> the cogs, you know, not you, but everyone else. That's what it is. But uh, it's just fun to see. Uh, it's fun to see that that camaraderie we all can have. But that's going great. That's the Bible Institute in Weinard. And uh, 
I'll be teaching a college course for them in February. So I'll be teaching at 6 p.m. Uh, three days a week in February at 8.30 a.m. their time on a healthy church. So uh, Dr. Joseph wanted to take the conference that we did and expand that to a college course. So I'm excited about uh, that opportunity uh, as we move forward. So we're connected in. It's all going to be on Zoom. So I'll be on live video uh, with them and excited about that. And he's looking forward to us getting down there and our involvement as a church uh, in that building process. So just a quick update on a, on a few of the projects and how the Lord's been working. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Numbers 20, I call this Mark's of transition. And, and 20, originally I was looking and you're going to put, I was going to put 19, 20, and 21 together. And as you're reading and studying and studying and suddenly it, it keeps going. And then I'm like, 20 is just such a critical turning um, chapter. And, and in all honesty, it deals with Moses' failure. I feel like that's the central portion of chapter 20. And I don't feel like even in my life that I've actually dealt with his failure from a learning perspective, I typically say he failed and move on without examining who he is and how he failed. And actually, that's going to be kind of a thought question that's going to come up as we look at Moses' failure. How do we as believers apply the lessons there to our lives? And so we're going to get the whole scene building out. But it is in a, in a scene of transition. Actually, it's tucked in the middle of both his siblings dying, uh, and the fact that Aaron dies and doesn't enter the promised land is the same reason Moses doesn't. Uh, they're both culpable in the error that Moses does, and I, I was, when I was reading through 20 and studying, that's what came to light was Aaron's punishment tied to Moses. The reason he didn't enter the promised land is because Moses struck the rock. He was culpable as he walked with them, but I put marks of transition. Change may come suddenly or it may come slowly, but when change arrives, it is obvious that things are different. I don't know how sudden this feels to the nation of Israel or to Moses or to his family, um, but things are not the same after 20. Things are changing and everyone's aware of it, though they may not like it. Uh, Israel has been wandering, when we get to chapter 20, for close to 40 years. And remember, they're wandering for 40 years. What's happening in the 40 years? What's taking place? They're dying off, which means by the time you get to the end of 40 years, you have a what? A new what? Generation. And I don't know about you, but when I read through numbers, I don't always pause for a second and say, new generation. And I don't think I've ever really paused and thought about the waters of Meribah and thought, this is mainly the new generation doing exactly what the old generation was doing. And that plays a big part into Moses' mindset as he walks into it. And not that it gives him an excuse, but helping us understand who is frustrating him in this moment is the next generation. Because as prophesied, one generation has almost passed away, and it's time for the next one to step forward. Now, when we think next generation, we automatically think people younger than us, right? I'm teaching at a high school, and so I'm looking at, there was a girl in the front row, she had a Virginia Tech sweater on, and I said, hey, uh, I was talking, I said, the last school I preached at, some kid liked the Florida State Seminoles, and I'm like, ugh, disgusting, right? At least I went to Tech, by the way, just in case you're wondering why I'm a Virginia Tech fan. It's not because they're good at football or any sport, it's because I went there for my undergraduate. And so I'm talking to her, but I'm looking at these kids 17, 18, I remember being 17. I remember getting, going off to college. 
uh, and, and the excitement that's there and you're planning. And I was teaching them actually on Psalm 90. I took that message and, and worked it for a, a high school. I wanted them to be serious about being satisfied in God's love and not chase the world. But it's just fascinating because typically you think of the next generation, you think your kid's age. That's what you're thinking. But in reality, there's people here who could have been 59, right? They're 19 and then they're now 40. They're, they're, so there's a, a wide range of ages, not older, not the super wise, but the medium wise ones are tucked right in there, 59 to 45. You know, I think they're pretty, pretty decently wise. That's where I land right now. So I have to give some shout out to them. Not everyone was a teenager, right? It's not one generation that's just coming up into college, but it is a new generation. And oftentimes as the reader, we miss that reality. As we walk in, as they start doing battle, as they fight people on the one side of the Jordan, which is chapter 21, that's a new generation. That's not the old generation. The new one's coming in. And so what God has done is he's positioned certain homegoings in chapter 20 that really should trigger our mind to recognize that this is marks of transition, that things are taking place. And the first big homegoing he gives us is Miriam passes away in verse 1 of chapter 20. Uh, then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And just to give ourselves some placement, we're back in the same exact spot where they told God, I'm not going in. Now it's a new generation here at the place where the old generation said, we're not going into the promised land. And what we see here is and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there's no specific rebellion. There's no specific sin. There's no specific punishment. It is natural. That's the whole implication of Scripture is that it's portrayed as natural causes. It is the first in the line of old leadership to move off the scene to show a shift in leadership. And what we see is the loss of the leading lady. She would be um, one of the very few prophetesses in Scripture. There's, I think, three that you're going to see, and really, I would say Anna in the New Testament wouldn't necessarily fall perfectly in that, though she was uh, predicting and talking, and so we give her that prophetess status. So three, I think coming in, Hosea's wife, I believe, was another, or someone in that time frame. Um, this is the leading lady of Israel, and she is dying off. Israel is at their starting point of failure to enter the promised land. Older generation is passing away, and now a key leader is buried as they prepare a second time to enter the land. We're going to see this over and over, and actually I'm going to close tonight with the same statement. What we need to notice in transition is that people change, but God's work continues. This is a hard reality to face. It's not the easiest thing to think about moving off the scene and entrusting the next generation with what God is doing now. I put as a question, are we able to see it and to trust God in it? Not trust man. Trust, you know, we don't need to trust man. You go to John, and then there's a portion of John and, and where it says that the people were following him, but it's a fickle faith. And it says that Jesus basically wasn't blown away by it. I'm paraphrasing here because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knows it. And I'm not saying that we trust in man here. I'm just saying that there's a point in time where God's work continues, 
and we're passing the baton. Doesn't mean it's just at the end of life. I've seen it in certain ministries where you realize uh, that this isn't something that you bring the right energy to or you're prepared for that God wants you to be intricately involved in. Uh, One of the things that I've worked for years to do is have camp in Nicaragua and then recognize that, hey, we need to have some 30-year-olds dive in and handle this because all the 40-year-olds need to try to focus on something else. And so one of the friends of mine, he's the director of the institute there. Uh, he's the key guy in Nicaragua, Pastor Moises. Uh, both he and I, we, we chatted about it. We're involved in camp. I mean, we're arranging a lot of details, but it's Pastor Angelo that's the director of camp. Uh, it's someone that he's mentored. Uh, he's in his 30s. Sometimes you have to realize that somebody else has to do it. God's work continues but you're not the person that they're going to put forward. And, and, and the question as we walk into Miriam is, do we trust God as he accomplishes his work? I'm not talking about dropping the ball when you're still able to be involved. That would be, if I'm using the same illustration, that would be Moises and I saying, whatever, you guys figure it out. That's not happening. But it's recognizing that, that sometimes the mantle has to move on to someone else so that someone else's energy and passion and direction from God can be put to use. Do we trust God in that, though? Do we rest in Him as we see transition? People change, move off, switch, but God's work continues. And oftentimes, we get caught up in the individual that's doing the work, and sometimes when we do that, we've made that person a demigod in that God's work's going to stop when they can't continue. What's going to happen when X can't do that anymore? Well, God's going to find Y, and He's going to bring them along, and trusting in what God's doing, and then being a part of that. Well, it's not all smooth sailing, though, as we mark the transition, and this becomes the the central focus of the book. The next generation, as I mentioned, portrays the same propensities as the last, and Moses and Aaron, by proximity, respond in a manner that steals from God. They respond in a way that displays a lack of faith. As Scripture notes, they disbelieve God. And it's a a pretty drastic statement. We think they get angry and respond in anger, and actually God views it as disbelief to take away. And and I'll I'll share this later on, but one of the components of faith, especially in the Old Testament, was obedience equaled faith. What did God say to do? Do it. That's faith. Follow what he says, whether it's a promise or a command. Do it. And so when we see Moses not doing that, it's not just an act of rebellion and disobedience. It's an act of disbelief to not take God at his word, not do what he said. And so we come to the next segment of this chapter, and it's Moses fails. It's verses 2 through 13, and follow along. There's a lot of tales that are told. Uh, So one of the things, if you read in the uh, Targum and some of the other uh, Hebrew literature, they they tie a well of water to Miriam, and then when Miriam dies, the well dries up. There's a whole folklore attached to this. And so suddenly we have a reason for the lack of water That's a folklore. I'm just saying that people have tied it all together. Basically, what happens is we have Miriam buried, and then there's an issue of being in the desert where there's not enough water for two million people. Because when we get to the counted numbers, we're going to see very similar totals that come out, not per tribe, 
but as a total. And it says in, in verse 2, And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. This is the same MO. We're going to attack God's people. And the people chode with Moses, argued and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. You know what they're asking for? I wish we would have died with the other generation. I wish we would have keeled over in the desert. I wish we were one of them. I don't like being the new generation. I wish I was the dead old generation. That's literally what they're saying. This is the next generation doing exactly what the previous one did, and now they're wanting to be dead like they are. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord in this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? And now we're going to go back a little forward. And wherefore have you made us to come out, out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? This is the promised land. This is what God gave them. And they're saying, this is awful. This is evil. It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. I don't see any of the things that God promised. Well, obviously not. You're not in the promised land yet. And then on top of that, there's no water. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And this is them doing what's right. When Israel complained in the past, God basically was set to wipe them out. Remember, Aaron has to run with incense, and 14,000 die. They are falling before God just as they would have done before. But God's response is, is different. Because he says, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, and you start realizing that this is Moses being tested to see if he's going to give God glory in another difficult situation or he's not. And it says, take the rod. And that rod right there, uh, commentators disagree on it. I do think Gordon Wenham is right. He says the rod is the rod from chapter 17. This is Aaron's rod. This is the rod that when they threw all the rods together, it budded, it produced fruit, it produced flowers, it produced almonds. It was, it was complete. And remember at the end of that, when Israel looks at that rod, it's, it's in 17, they say, we're undone, we're unholy. It is that final proof. And God says, take that final proof with you. And suddenly Moses is holding the power staff in some ways, but he gives him an interesting thing. He says, Take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation their beast drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord. Again, if it's before the Lord, it means it's the one in the tabernacle, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels, must, and what's the next word? We. In any translation that I've read, it's we. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Now you see a change, right? Who are they talking about? We is Moses and Aaron, right? Must we do this? He starts preaching at them. God didn't command him to preach at them there. What did God tell him to do? He said, take my rod that represents all this power that literally knocked them flat and then talk to the rock. He doesn't say talk to the people. He doesn't say reprimand the people. He says, take this magic staff because that's how they're going to see it. And basically, what is God doing? Setting that back and saying, God's going to work. God, I'm going to emphasize what God's going to do. Moses instead says, you're rebels. 
do we have to get you water out of a rock? And it says, Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod, he smote the rock twice and the water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beast also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, to lift me up, to present me as holy. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. They start off right on their knees before the Lord. They recognize the affront of this complaint against God and fall on their faces before God. God then gives them detailed instruction. And this is interesting, as I mentioned, and, and it's important. He doesn't say, I'm going to kill all the people for what they've done. He now zeroes in on Moses and Aaron and says, take the staff, Aaron's staff, the one before the Lord. I want you to go out there, and I want you now to speak and let the water come from the rock. I want you to make me seen as holy, glorified, elevated in the eyes of this, and remember who you're talking to, next generation. Now, have they seen some of the stuff in the 40 years? Of course they have. If you're 59, you've seen things since you're 19, and you're aware of that. But he's addressing them so that they see who is God and who is not God, and of course it doesn't unfold. Moses takes the staff, and after personal reprimand to the people, strikes the rock with the magic staff, and what we see, and I put this down, is the arrogance possible in service. Moses honors himself instead of God. It's the we. Who is going to bring water? We are. What this means is that Moses and Aaron failed to display faith in God. And as I, I quote Gordon Wenham in the Old Testament, faith is seen in the correct response to God's word. The opposite of faith is rebellion and disobedience. What did Moses do here? Disobeyed God. And his disobedience pointed to his disbelief in God. And I actually think that's a helpful hint to us as believers today. We think we've tripped up in sin. God sees sin as disbelief, as a rejection of him, as rebellion against him. We know that. We use those words and it means that they've decided them over God. And what happens is the loss of temporal reward. Both Moses and Aaron lose the privilege of entering the promised land. The end of 20 is God says, hey, you hit the rock at Meribah, Aaron's got to go. And he's brought up on Mount Hor and he dies. Um, this was interesting to me. November 19th, I did Psalm 90. Moses wrote that psalm around this time. And so I shared about Moses, obviously, glorifying himself. And so Clayton on, uh, I put November 28th, so it's been about 11 or, or nine days. He asked me a question. He says, hey, dad, uh, did Moses um, end up going to hell? And I'm like, oh, no. Did you hear that from your teacher? <laughs> and he heard it from me. And he says, well, you said he didn't enter the promised land. So did he not make it to heaven? And I said, no, no, no. He and I was excited that he remembered the sermon. You know, he's only seven, so that he's asking this question is blowing my mind. Because usually I get, we talked about God out of this deal. So, um, and I said, I'm excited, but I also wanted him to understand what was going on. I said, no, Moses broke God's law. He rebelled, he sinned, so he didn't go to that promised land. But he was a believer. He entered into 
um, the real or the full promised land. And that's a distinction that's important to make. The lack of entry into the promised land from the mistake in Meribah, his anger and his lack of faith, but that punishment was limited to here on earth. Moses and Aaron both end up in the real promised land and are set on par with the other patriarchs. They're gathered, it says of Aaron, gathered to their people. But oftentimes we, we, can, we can lose sight of the fact that because we look at God's punishment, we think, man, one mess up and no promised land. It seems harsh until you realize that they didn't lose the real promised land. It was a temporal loss. The second they died, they were with God. They don't want to come back and see that promised land. But here's where I want us to kind of pause for a second as we work through this is, and I put here, let us pause and drive us a serious reflection. Um, this is not some random guy who's typically arrogant and typically does rash, angry things. Moses is described as being meek and humble, yet still in this moment, and mainly with the new generation, was tempted and failed the test, grabbing God's glory for himself, spurning God, and pointing the confidence of the people on himself. Because that's what he did. When he hit the rock, he told the next generation, you trust in me. I'm your confidence. I'm your trust. What he did was he replaced himself with God in their eyes. And when you recognize that, you start realizing why the punishment, the temporal punishment was in place. But I want us to remember something about Moses. He's the meekest of men. Numbers 12, 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So when you are the most meek upon all the men on the face of the earth, that means you're meek, right? What is meekness? It's, it's been misdescribed over and over. Uh, the meek shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. You go back to what Christ says. It's the first one out of the gate. And meekness is described as someone fully aware of their need of God. Someone fully aware of their inability to be enough themselves. I want you to recognize who Moses is and then to see what he did. And I want us to pause a second because I think oftentimes we believe that we're not susceptible to what he did. Here is the meekest man. And remember what that means. He understands very well his need of God and that he is not enough. So he knows who he is in God's eyes and he knows who God is and his need of God. And that person, that person hits a rock and steals glory from God. And I, and I want us to, to, to think a little bit, what kind of warning is there for us? And there's obviously the arrogance that can come out in service. And, and we see it. There's story after story, whether those are written stories, whether they're stories we hear from friends, family, beyond that of what arrogance and service can do and how destructive it is. I think we know how destructive it is for Moses and Aaron. But I put, what are some of the street-level practices that must be employed to prevent this from creeping up in us? And in all honesty, it's really a thought question. I, I wrote one answer down that I think is key to dive into, but by no means summarizes it. But what I think we need to learn from what Moses did 
And, and, and keep in mind how God described him. The meekest. And if the meekest man, the one that is aware that they need God at the most profound spiritual level, that they are most definitely not enough. The meekest man is not struggling with who God is and who he is, but in a moment of time, the arrogance of service broke out and he took the place of God in the eyes of the people. What must be on our mind? And I want us to, to, to take some time and think. I have one answer that I think is critical, an awareness of our perpetual susceptibility to that form of pride. If Moses can fall prey to this, then most certainly I can, and most certainly you can. And recognizing how destructive that is. What did Moses do in that moment? He moved the eyes of the people from God to him. Or if you want to say they're not looking to God, he most definitely pointed them in the wrong direction. And if we lose sight of the perpetual susceptibility we have to pride, then most certainly Satan has a playground with us. This world will come in and swoop and take us over. And I think all of us, if we pause for a second, and it's often easier to think of other people's pride, so go ahead and wander there for a second. We've seen what other people's pride or arrogance and service, what destruction it can do. But of course, that's not really what I'm mentioning for other people. It's for us to not fall prey to the same mindset that hit Moses. Not just say, wow, Moses, 120 years and you blow it at the end, way to fail. Instead, realize that Moses was as close to God as you could possibly be with a face that shone from seeing God's glory, that constantly was on his knees. Get this, on his knees right before he does this. Correct action, correct heart, and how easily that overcomes or overtakes us. And if, if you get nothing from chapter 20, walk away with the lesson from Moses that we are susceptible to pride. What caused Satan to be kicked out of heaven? Pride. I've read some books, and you, and you can almost trace any sin to pride. It's the base of sin. Eve ate of the apple. Why? Because she could be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's kicked out of heaven because he wants to be God. Most of sin is traced back to that horrific vision of pride. Well, the chapter turns now to the task at hand, and I'll move through it kind of quickly, entering the land. But everything's not going to be easy and straightforward. It's not just a, 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 an easy march forward for the nation of Israel. Israel desires to travel through Edom and enter the promised land in the middle. So we're not going to try it from bottom up. We're going to come in at the middle. That's how Joshua comes in. Jericho is not at the bottom. Jericho is up at the midpoint, right, right there um, across the Jordan. And so Moses requests permission to travel across Edom, but Edom refuses. Verses 14 through 21 of this chapter, and I'm, I'm going to basically summarize it just for the sake of time, but basically, Moses sends messengers to the king of Edom, says, hey, can we walk the king's highway, which is a known highway, also called the sultan's highway. 
Uh, so we're going to walk a main path. This is what people always do. This is the normal way. This is not outside the ordinary. I mean, it's a little weird. It's two million people at one time, but this is the pathway up. The king denies it. Uh, it, it in Moses, it seems like, repeats the request. Uh, most commentators would think that it's more of an expansion of what the request actually said. It was in detail. Hey, if we use any water, we'll pay for it. We won't do anything. And what you find from Eden is an obstacle of entry. There is no casual no. Edom actually brings out an army to make sure Israel knows that they don't mean no. They mean absolutely not. And what we, we see is not only just an obstacle, but we find violent resistance to what God is planning. Now Israel is, is confronted with, uh, I thought God was getting us through this. This seems like th that he would have worked in the king's heart to make sure we could walk this path. In other words, they're confronted with resistance and how are they going to answer it? They also are confronted with an army, a large one. What are they going to face when they go into the promised land? Army after army after army after army. Resistance after resistance after resistance. They don't fight. This is a relative of Jacob. This is the descendants of Esau. It doesn't mean they don't ever fight Edom. It's just that this instance, God has not called them to fight Edom. Ask permission. Feel an obstacle. Have to go around. And that resistance is going to prompt a move of extra marching. If you've wandered the desert for this long, do you think you want to walk a little extra? You ever have that? I remember being on a hike once. I've only been on like three in my life. This is when I was a teenager. And I remember climbing up a mountain, and, and uh, my brother and I stopped at Roy Rogers. That was the one we was still in Culpeper. Got ourselves a Coke and a biscuit. We bought nothing with us for an all-day hike. No water. Absolutely nothing. We're geniuses, right? So we're going up the mountain, and we get kind of thirsty. And one of the leaders is... is uh, you know, giving a sips of water, and that grossed me out too because I don't like drinking after people. And so there's a whole, we drank out of some creek, which when you think about it, it's worse than drinking after somebody, but water tastes like metal. But, you know, we, we did it. But talk about not wanting extra time. We reached the top. Everyone wanted to look at trees. My brother and I thought it was a race to the top, so we were blazed up there, waited an hour for everyone to get there. And then we realized, I was like, oh, do you want to go right back down the same way or go the new way? And we're like, what's shorter? They didn't want to go shorter. They wanted to go new. We wanted to go shorter. We were done hiking. We were thirsty, and that biscuit had worn off long ago. Soda wasn't much help either, and so there we go down the mountain. We were frustrated. We did not want to go the long way, and we knew something. They're going to go down as slow as they went up. And we're going to beat them, but we don't have the keys. We didn't drive here ourselves, you know, and so we were frustrated. Can you imagine the frustration that goes into Israel after marching through the desert for 40 years and you find out, hey, I can't walk through Edom. I got to go around them. You know what's around them? Desert. <laughs> Pretty much all, all desert, you know, there it goes. And so they're getting ready to go. But before that happens, we hit another major transition and Aaron passes away, 22 through 29. It's abrupt. <laughs> and the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came unto Mount Hor. And right there, as it says in 23, and the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the coast of the land of Edom, saying, in other words, they weren't in Edom, they're right at the edge. So Miriam has died in Kadesh. We've now marched to the edge of Edom. We're at Mount Hor. A lot, there's a lot of speculation on what mountain that is, and, and people get lost in the weeds. Uh, we don't exactly know. The one they've picked actually is currently in the territory of Edom, and one commentator 
was smart enough to say, yeah, but that wasn't in their territory when they were there. So uh, you can get all split up over it. I think the, they're probably right. That's the mountain that makes the most sense. And it happened at some point to be Edom's, but not right now. And it says, Aaron, this is God speaking, shall be gathered unto his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because ye believed or ye rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Think about that for a second from Moses' perspective. Yeah, Aaron has to die. You hit a rock. Not just him. Now his brother's done. Because Aaron's culpable. He's with Moses. They're together, both blessed and hurt there. And so he says this, Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, and bring them up onto Mount Hor. And think about that. You come to a mountain, and then God says to Moses and Aaron, Aaron's dying. He has no idea. This is coming. You're done. And then he says, Climb a mountain and take your son with you. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them upon Eliezer's son. And Aaron shall be gathered unto his people and shall die there. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up into Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. All the people are watching Eliezer, Aaron, and Moses climb a mountain. And Moses and Aaron, and I'm sure Eliezer know, I don't know if the whole congregation knows yet, that Aaron's going to the top of the mountain, but he doesn't get to come back down. It's done for. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them upon Eliezer, his son. And Aaron died there in the top of the mount, and Moses and Eliezer came down from the mount. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron 30 days, even all the house of Israel, which they give him uh, a hero's uh, mourning, not seven days, but 30 days. But think about this, how abrupt that is. Miriam dies, we have... Moses and Aaron actually failing, the people failing. And then we get to Mount Hor, and God says, hey, take Eliezer, you and Aaron. Uh, Aaron's done. He's not sick. He's not feeling weak. He's not dying off. He climbs a mountain and takes his garments off and passes them to his son, and I don't know, drops dead immediately. Aaron passes. There's a transition to the new generation. Moses is reminded, I'm not leading these people into the promised land. It's going to be someone else's opportunity. And again, I, I, I end with what I started with with Miriam. People change, but God's work continues. Are we able to move with the Lord? I'm not saying move with people. I'm saying move with the Lord to recognize that people may change, people may pass away, but that God's work will continue, that his purpose will be fulfilled. Are we able to move with the Lord?